We are going to start today's session with a conversation with Elizabeth Yin, General Partner at Hustle Fund. Elizabeth, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thanks for having me, Shramana. My pleasure. Let's uh, get you acquainted with our audience. Uh, tell us a bit about your a background. Bit about your background. Yeah, so in a nutshell, um grew up in Silicon Valley and worked at big tech for a while. In fact, my last large tech job, I think, was at Google. And I felt like, although it was great, um, it was just way too big for me. So I decided to start my own business in late 2008. So mm -hmm. I, I really uh, have wonderful timing. Um, I left my cushy job to start my own company, but I couldn't raise any money at all. And uh, yeah. as yeah. you know, many of you may remember, those were hard times. But uh, it really taught me how to build a business. Ended up building out an ad network called Launchbit and sold that company in 2014. And I've been on the investing side for the last six years or so, uh, most recently okay. with Hustle Fund. All right. So uh, you just talked about your being for uh, several years in big tech, the last job being Google, and then you – uh, started a company right as the financial crisis was kicking in gear, and uh, and then you built an ad network and sold it in 2014, and how you've been in investment since. Um, I was about to ask you about the investment thesis of Hustle Fund. Yes, that's right. So for Hustle so Fund, we call ourselves a pre-seed fund which means that we invest in software startups at the earliest stages. I know everyone says they're an early stage investor, but what we mean by it is uh, our sweet spot is we look for companies with a product, um, but we don't care about traction at all. And we can make that decision usually within 48 hours of a conversation with, uh, with a founder and can mm -hmm. certainly dig into the model, but that's the gist of it. Okay. Well, we will dig into the model. Let me get a bit of the specifics of what check size are you writing usually? Yeah, our first check in almost all cases is $25,000. And how big is the fund? Our fund one was an $11.5 million fund, and our fund two is announced. Okay. And um, what do you look for by way of validation? I mean, anybody can put together a product. What is it that you're looking for? What sector, what kind of business model, B2B, B2C, what types of problems do you want to solve? And, you know, what specifically determines what you li like to write your check for? Certainly. So there are a couple of considerations. Number one is I think – your fund size is your strategy. Everyone says that, but what does that really mean? I think for smaller funds, there are certain things you can do and certain things you can't do. So, for example, when you're writing a smaller check to kind of mitigate downside risk, uh, for us, we look for companies that could potentially, you know, generate revenue almost immediately. So even if we are coming in super early and the company cannot raise any more money, they ought to be able to survive and thrive even without additional DC funding. And so as such, we tend to invest mostly in B2B, some FinTech. We've done some consumer digital health as well where you could get paid fairly quickly with a D2C type of model. But the second thing is also around um, 
you know, what, like, people often ask me what sectors I like, and actually it's not about sector at all, but rather since I've been an entrepreneur for a long time and I've done a lot of marketing myself, you know, I think the biggest problem today in is actually customer acquisition. It's generally not technology for most businesses. You're saying that you uh, you focus really on customer acquisition more than uh, technology. You, what you're really wor worried about is how quickly a company can get into revenue and what is the customer acquisition strategy that gets into revenue. Can you elaborate on that? What are some nuggets you're learning uh, from the market of effective customer acquisition strategies? Well, there are customer acquisition channels that are very competitive already. Um, yes. You know, every customer acquisition channel has a cost. I think a lot of people think that, you know, SEO or something might be free, but there's a cost to hiring people to write, to build links, to partner. And, and so, you know, when I look at an idea, basically on gut feeling, try to think, well, I actually think, you know, this, this spread might be too tight between the, what I would perceive to be the CAC at scale and, and what I think the value of the customer is. And that, that's essentially how I make my decisions. Yeah. Okay. Um, let's talk about some of the companies that you've invested in and specifically talk about what did you see in them, especially by way of customer acquisition strategy. What were they doing? That get that got them uh, an effective customer acquisition strategy, since that's your primary determining factor. Let's do a few case studies. Certainly. So, because we have a wide swath of companies, you know, the the customer acquisition methods will range a bit. But I think on one end of the range, if we go with a more consumer company. Um, I have a number of consumer digital health companies in my portfolio, and almost yeah. all of them have actually a very similar playbook, primarily Facebook ads, but other forms of, you know, ads as well. And um, essentially, the, the model there is just really test out a lot of Facebook campaigns for these D2C products. It could be telehealth. Um, it could be, you know, medications. Um, my most notable company in this category, or the, rather the one that's furthest along probably is, is called the Pill Club. Um, they, you know, can't, certainly can't say what their current valuation and revenue is, but, you know, they are truly what a, a VC looks for in fast growth, you know, $100 million a year by year five type of thing. And so they, you know, the, the playbook is just bid up ads, Watch your spend, watch your payback period. Don't let it slip. Ideally get, you know, payback on first month. And it is actually very doable to do that uh, for many of these digital health companies. Mm -hmm. And then if you can provide a good experience and get the retention, then, you know, obviously additional value from the customers over the next several months um, really helps you out a lot. So that's one strategy that a number of companies use. On the other end, we've done a lot in B2B SaaS. We tend not to do enterprise where it's such a long sales cycle because mm -hmm. 25K doesn't really last you that long. And so for those folks, um, you know, obviously there are variations on it, but a lot of them initially do outbound 
and some, or some variation of outbound cold emailing. A, cold, a good cold email can go a long way. I think the other thing is these days you can make a sale relatively quickly. I think in the old days people thought, oh, cold email is something that you can only do if customers were, you know, tens of thousands of dollars to you or more. And I think the reality is actually that value of that customer doesn't need to be that high in order for cold email and a quick demo to work if you can get the close fast enough. And so on on that side, you know, I think actually most of my companies are a lot newer and so I don't I don't have any companies that anyone would have heard of in that category. But um, you know, certainly companies on the B2B SaaS side span the gamut for us construction, um, you know, pseudo fintech slash B2B, uh, you know, just they're actually kind of all literally all over the place. And these are all selling to small businesses, so it's online customer acquisition. In in some cases, the play for B2B is that lead gen to a, a webinar and getting online businesses to sign up for a Zoom webinar and then, you know, make the sale in the webinar. Um, and then also, to your point, actually selling to startups uh, even if they're Series B or Series C startups, it's often a faster sales cycle than selling to companies that have been around for a long time. So that also has helped out, I think, the B2B sector overall. Mm-hmm. And um, so when you're, when you're writing a 25K check for these kinds of companies, is that a convertible note or is that an equity investment? What, what terms do you apply? If we are the first one to the table, we will do that on a safe. And um, mm-hmm. if we are not the first one to the table and there's a round that's already there in place, we will look at it for the terms at hand. So sometimes it's an equity round, sometimes a convertible loan, and, and sometimes a safe. Okay. All right. And um, from your fund strategy point of view, are you looking for um, – venture-style companies, as you said, the zero to 100 million in five years kind of companies, or are you uh, looking for early exits? Uh, You know, a lot of small funds are now looking at early exits, including some, in some cases, they're selling to later round investors, their positions. What is your analysis of your fund strategy? We are looking for 100x return as the ideal in our winners. Obviously, that's not something anybody can guarantee and and something that, you know, doesn't have happen frequently. But what I mean by that is, let's say that we're getting in at, you know, call it $3 million post money. We are looking for an exit of at least $300 million. And so as such, depending on when you get in, um, the exit doesn't have to necessarily be a unicorn, a billion-dollar business. Um, but you know, obviously, if that valuation is higher in our entry point, then, you know, we, we <laughs> the, the stakes are higher as well. The other thing is, um, in about 20% of cases in our model, so actually to lay out the whole model, we are a relatively high-frequency investment shop in that we invest in, you know, about 100 to 200 companies per fund. And so as such, we are doing a lot of investing um, in about 20% of cases we will follow on and usually at around seed or so. And uh, we, we decide who to follow on based on a number of factors, including working with the founders. Um, uh-huh. You know, is, is it a good fit on both sides actually to continue working 
And that is actually how we decide where to allocate most of our capital. And if, um, you know, on that second check, we can also get in and believe that we can have potentially 100x at that valuation, then we will do that. So that is also a factor in our follow-on. Um, but we are looking for that because I think in having run the, the numbers, um, you know, number one, the failure rate is so high. And when I say that, a lot of people are like, well, my companies are always doing well. But it's not failure rate of the companies. It's failure rate for the investors. I've been in a number of scenarios over the years where the company actually has done quite well, but there's no opportunity for investors to sell or get their money out. So that is considered a failure. Um, and as such, the winners then need to basically pay for all the failures and then plus a lot more in order to generate a great fund. I think the second thing is if you do have companies that are, you know, have found product market fit and are really growing quickly, um, it is a lot easier to continue growing that than to start a new business. And so as such, we don't like to sell early. Okay. So, and, and what is the total, if in these 25% of the companies where you do do a follow-on, how much money do you invest? Um, what, is, what do you allocate per company in that preferred bucket? We will follow on with, you know, anywhere between 250K to even up to a million in our follow-on investments. Okay. Okay. Got it. Um, what happens to these, you know, let's say of 100 companies from your first fund, if 25 gets follow-on and the other 75 doesn't, what happens to those other 75? Um, they continue on just like everybody else. Uh, we help all of our companies, regardless of how much we're investing, raise money from investors, whether it's when we write the first check or, you know, at their seed round, whether we're writing another check or not. You know, I think that the natural question in people's minds is, well, if you don't follow on, does that mean it's a bad company? And actually the answer is no. In fact, if you if we look at the companies we didn't follow on, um, in fact, in some cases, they may be a phenomenal company and uh, it's the valuation, you know, I guess you could say got away from us and we didn't believe we could have 100X. So that's, that's certainly one reason why we might not invest again because we felt like the valuation was too high relative to where they were. And that could just be because we were preempted by, you know, some large fund or whatnot. In other cases, it could be that actually we may want to follow on, but just not right now. And there isn't any distinct point in time anymore where you would follow on. I think one, you know, big change in the ecosystem is a lot of people are investing on convertible notes and safe. And so actually when we do follow on, it's usually off round, not when other investors are investing. So we may not do the seed, but we may do the post seed and just offer it as a direct check. Um, or we may do it even before the seed. And so, you know, just because we haven't followed on means that it does not mean that we will not. And uh, and then I think the last consideration around that is just, you know, I think um, the, the, the learnings about the market and the growth, um, it could be that the company is actually growing quite well and will be a successful exit from a founder's perspective, but it may not hit kind of the, the – I guess, requirements or whatever that we we think it needs to in order for us to return the fund. And that is not a bad thing, actually. The company could be, you know, quite brilliant. So your uh, follow-ons are also on safe or are those equity investments? 
typically they are unsafe. Oh, okay. So your entire fund is safe. Interesting. Got it. Um, can you give, you talked about digital health being one category. You talked about B2B being one category. Is there a breakout company in your fund that uh, has done really well that you could talk about in a bit more detail? Certainly. So we have only been around for just over three years now. So most of the companies we've invested in the last, you know, two years or so, nobody would have heard of. But what we did was we actually rolled in our angel investments into the fund. So they are actually health fund portfolio companies. Um, so, you know, we have companies like, for example, uh, we invested um, in, I, I don't know what the nomenclature is, but seed or pre-seed in Webflow many years ago, I think in 2012. Um, we are uh, investors at the seed in NerdWallet. Um, that's a financial advice company. Um, both of those are doing incredibly well, even if their valuations are not announced, they are you know, sort of in that unicorn status or whatever you would want to call it. And, um, and the Pill Club as well, I think for those who follow digital health, is, you know, it's also up there. Um, so those are probably the, the most well-known in our portfolio. Um, the other companies are quite new, but I, um, I'm actually very excited about the trajectory of many of them. So if you look at what you are looking for now, based on your observation in the mar about the market, what's happening, the trends, COVID, uh, you know, extreme amounts of online spending, online time spending, et cetera, what, uh, what have you uh, concluded as to what you would like to invest in? What's your current uh, investment thesis based on trends? I think um, it's so funny because uh, it's, you know, this entire year has been so challenging to predict. Um, so for us, we just sort of stay the course of, you know, based on current frameworks, like what we think. Um, again, we'll have relatively straightforward customer acquisition, but of course, even that is hard to predict. In fact, I would say that a lot of my companies that have been using Facebook ads, um, they've actually seen a benefit in some sense from COVID in that the customer acquisition costs have gone down fairly tremendously because a lot of companies have just stopped advertising altogether in response to COVID um, and the, the potential uncertainty. So th I think that would have been very challenging to predict. I don't know which way it would have gone, especially in light of the fact that actually digital health has, you know, really boomed and so has remote work during this time. Um, and digital health in particular uses those channels. Uh, in, in, you know, a couple of cases, you know, I have two health companies that have been able to expand uh, their market because regulations have also decreased during this time. You can now serve other states um, more easily without having to jump through the normal hoops, and that's definitely not something I would have predicted. Whether that lasts or not, I, I don't know, unfortunately. Like next year, I don't know if the government will say, okay, well, actually you have to jump back in the queue and go through our regular regulatory approvals state by state, but um, it certainly has been interesting to watch. Interesting. Um, I think that's a, that's a good summary of uh, what you are trying to do. Uh, as you can imagine, our portfolio constantly sees companies in your stage, and uh, we will, now that we know about what your uh, agenda is, we will uh, we will make those connections as we go along. Thank you for coming well, thank today. Thank you. Thank you for having me. I know you have to run. See you soon. Bye -bye. Thank you. Take care.